Morning, church. Um, my name is Shaya Bankale, and I've been attending Reality for close to two years now. Um, and it's an honor and privilege for me to be standing before you this morning. I also volunteer at the food pantry, so shout out to my food pantry folks. All right, today's text is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 30. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but, with not, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel we will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. As our friend shared, my name is Mike, and I'm the executive pastor at our church, and it's a real pleasure to be here. My wife and I and our two kids, three-year-old and seven-month-old, moved to the city in October. It's an honor to be a part of what, a small part of what God is doing in our city, and also really cool to be a part of what God's doing in our church. Um, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, and um, the Gospel of Mark is an account of Jesus's life that's broken down into two halves, chapters one through eight and then nine through 16. And this gospel answers two fundamental questions about Jesus, like the most important questions you could ask about Jesus. The first half, all the accounts, all the sayings, everything points to this question, who is this man? A great question. And the second half of the gospel of Mark, nine through 16 answers the question, what has he come to do? What has Jesus come to accomplish? What's the function of him, the son of God, preexistent creator of the world, come for us? What is his real purpose? And so 
it's in service to that question, what does he come to do, that we, we find our answer in part from this passage that Jesus has come, among many other things, but to give people life within his kingdom. That's the answer to the question. What does Jesus come to do? What is the function of him spending time with these people, fielding questions from random people running up to him and kneeling down in front of him? The answer is to give people life within his kingdom. And you'll see it in the passage multiple times. Verse 17, if you've got your Bible open in front of you or even on a device, the first question from the man is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then in verses 23 and 25, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples ask, who then can be saved? And in verse 30, Jesus says, promises in the age to come, eternal life. These are all dancing around this same concept, which is like, how do we venture to draw near to God, the God? And I just granted, these are big, scary questions because I can imagine many of us and even this rich young man would have asked this question of other people previously in his life. He could say, how do you think we connect to God and have a spiritual force that's greater than ourselves? But everyone else this guy probably ever talked to would not have spoken with the authority that Jesus speaks with. That's the scary part about talking to Jesus. So everything, everyone else in this guy's life probably said, well, you know, here's what I think, or here's how I sort of see God, here's my subjective angle on it. But the scary part of the question is that when you ask this to Jesus, he speaks with authority. He's not just giving his opinion. And then secondly, it's scary because Jesus sort of knows you already. Like if you read the gospels, you see this idea that like Jesus kind of knows everyone already. He cuts right to the chase. He goes right to the thick of it, right to the heart of every different issue. He speaks with authority and he already knows you before you've even opened your mouth. Those are scary things, just to be honest. It's like being interviewed by my favorite um, Canadian music um, journalist, Nardwar, the human serviette. Just by show of hands, anybody know who this person is? Okay, if, so Nardwar in the 90s was like the best music interviewer. He worked for like public television in Canada and this random corny middle-aged Canadian guy would find his way backstage at hip hop concerts dressed like this, interviewing the biggest celebrities in, in the world. The cool, calm, collected, successful artist. And so he would go up to Jay-Z, Chance the Rapper, J. Cole, whatever. And then, uh, but the, the reason he's great and he has a cult following online is because he does tons of research and actually obsesses about artists. He loves music, loves artists. And it comes out with this, this is the shtick. He goes backstage at a hip-hop concert, doesn't look like the kind of person who would ever belong at a hip-hop concert, and he has to ease into it. The first question he asks is always so obvious as though he doesn't even know who the person is. So he'll go up to Jay-Z and say, what is your name and what is your age? <laughs> and Jay-Z, you know, leans in, I'm X years and my name is Jay-Z, spelled with a Z. And then the second question is, is kind of like an insulting question question, like, why do you think your music is so important? And then these like big important celebrities have to answer the question. But then here's the third question. The third question is always the most specific inside knowledge question that anyone has ever asked any other human being. And it becomes evident that this guy, Nardwar the human serviette from, from British Columbia, has been researching you for months 
in the expectation that he would catch you backstage at a random concert. And so he'll say something like, in the third grade, you freestyle rapped in Miss Williams' class and Nick made fun of you. Was that a deterrent to your music career? Some celebrities like lay hands on this guy. Like they go, how do you know that? And they want to get angry and they fight the guy. Some of them literally will go, I'm sorry, I'm running away now because you're gonna kill me and eat me. You know, like you're, you're a stalker. And then many people are just dumbfounded. Like how, how would you know that? So it must feel weird that before you even open your mouth, Nardwar already knows everything about you. And the trip with the interview is that at the end of the discussion, he gives a gift that's so like to the heart, like a vintage record of a band that you liked when you were a kid that you never told anyone about. And it's evident that he called your mama and like said, what's your son into? And then he gives the gift and some of these people cry. They're like, this is the most meaningful moment, you know. So Nardwar, the human serviette, it's, it's like Jesus. Like before you, you venture... <laughs> He dresses maybe better. <laughs> so it, it must feel difficult asking like big, hairy, high stakes spiritual questions of Jesus because he speaks with authority. He cuts right to the chase. He already discerns the inner motivations of your heart and takes it right to the most difficult part of the question. That is what's going on with this rich young ruler. And this question is challenging for our cultural moment that we live in because I know I'm new to town, but San Francisco is not known for having an abundance of people who ask the question, how might I be saved in Jesus Christ? And so it's a difficult topic. Um, in, philosophy, in grad school, I studied philosophy under a professor that once told me in a discussion about the post-Christian era, why does it seem like the culture is shifting and people's opinions about God and church are changing? She said something that stuck with me for a, more than a decade now. She said, you know, your worldview is most functionally shaped by the questions you're willing to leave unanswered. And sure, there's some segment of the population in San Francisco that might be somewhat antagonistic about God. They might sort of uno reverse God. They go, oh, you don't like me, I don't like you. Oh, you don't, oh God, you don't think I'm good, uno reverse, I don't think God is good. And there might be some people that are, are, are the pushing back on God types, but I'd say the dominant perception in the late modern expressive individualistic West cultural moment that we find ourselves in now is that people don't even care to ask the question that is posed in the passage. How can anyone be saved? How can I enter the kingdom of God? So I'm just granting, just putting it out there that it's a fascinating question, an interesting question, and a question that most people are not prone to asking. And what my philosophy prof in grad school was saying is that the greatest indication of how you live your life, your worldview and guiding philosophy, is not so much that everyone digs into every part of every philosophy and issue. The greatest indication of how you live your life is actually just what questions you even ask. And what questions you say, I don't even care to ask that question. And so it might be the case in your workplace, with your family, with your friends, neighbors, in the city, that the concern is not that Christianity is not credible, but why should I even ask? And to that, I would say, if you're here this morning and that sort of is the worldview that you carry, why, why would anyone ask how to have eternal life in Jesus's kingdom? I would encourage you, if anything, to think about the way Jesus changed the world with, very, with these very interactions with humanity. Like even if you currently don't believe in Jesus, son of God, savior, think about the fact that Jesus changed the world with his inclination towards the poor. 
with these concepts of grace and mercy and the way that we enter his kingdom because it's the, the way that we enter God's kingdom is the very thing that sets us up to be peacemakers and, and those who love the marginalized and the poor. Jesus changed the world with these interactions. And by the way, if you were to count on a list, the 10 most impactful positive forces for good in the world, Jesus is definitely on that list, but of the people on the list who have changed the world for the better, he is most definitely the only person who also claimed to be God, forgive sins, receive worship. And so if, here's the point I'm trying to make. If, Jesus, if we know Jesus changed the world for the better, and we know that on a list of those people, he's the only one who said, I am God, come for you then it doesn't prove that Jesus is who he says he is, but it means you have to like pay attention. It means you have to ask the question. It means you have to spend at least a season of life saying, is the, are the claims of Jesus and the power that people have claimed that God has made in their life, is it true? Is it for real? So there's something in this passage that inclines people who don't ask the question to ask the question. There's also something powerful here in the passage today about people who are discouraged but are currently Christians. People use the word deconstructing a lot these days. If you're prone to leaving the faith, walking away from Jesus, you're in a place where you're saying, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian anymore, then there's something relevant in this passage because we see a person doing religious deeds, saying religious things, and then walking away from Jesus. And then, of course, in a discussion for any Christian on entering the kingdom of God, it's powerful for us to just pause, worship Jesus because of it, because the way that we draw near to God is the same power and motivation for us to live close to God every day as, as Christians. So, in service to this question, what did Jesus come to do? And the answer that he came to give people life within his kingdom, we're gonna walk through the passage and, and talk about three things. The man, the money, and the method of entering his kingdom. The man, uh, we're gonna talk about how are we like and unlike the guy in this passage of scripture. Secondly, we'll talk about the money. What is the role of, what is the spiritual significance of money? And thirdly, how to enter the kingdom of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We're asking the question. So what do we know about this man and what might he have to do with our lives today? We know first and foremost, if you look at the text in verse 22, that he is a successful person. It says in verse 22, when he left Jesus, that his face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This same account happens in Luke and Matthew and in those two accounts, we find out that the man is not only rich, in Mark, but young, in, and, um, and he's a ruler in Matthew and Luke, and that's where we get the title for this interaction, the, the rich, young ruler. So if he's rich, and he's young, and he's powerful and in charge of things, then it stands to reason that he is also, if we're coloring in the lines a bit, self-confident, filled with young, naive optimism because his life has gone from strength to strength without much failure or pushback. Rich, young, ruler, and probably handsome to boot. <laughs> so he's successful. Secondly, he's, he's good. He's a good person. We have to sort of 
walk through the text a bit to see that he actually is a very moral person. And I recognize that, that it, there is sort of an economic philosophy that says anyone who's rich is therefore unjust. The only way to sort of gather riches is to step on other people. And I see here that Jesus has a lot of nuance with his opinion about money or his stance on money. And you'll see the nuance here. Look in verse 26. Um, the disciples were amazed that he walked away from Jesus and that Jesus set this very high bar for this rich young ruler. And so they asked the question, who can be saved? What that means is, is the disciples saw something good in him such that when he walked away, they said, if this guy's not in the kingdom, what good do we have? What are our chances? It's not as though they, um, to quote Rousseau, that they would say, if we run out of food, let's eat the rich. It's not as though their opinion is good. We don't want rich people in our club anyway. Good, good riddance. They are, they're, they're troubled with this man's response to Jesus. And they're saying, if this guy's not in, then uh, we're screwed. And in verse 19, Jesus is nuanced on the topic of money because he challenges the guy with the questions from the Ten Commandments in verse 19. So he says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus selects from the Ten Commandments the horizontal laws, the laws that pertain to like peer-to-peer human level treatment. He doesn't so much pick out the God and human commandments. And so he's trying to quiz the guy. If you're rich, did you get your money justly? Did you treat people well? Defraud, steal, give false testimony. And the guy says, no, I've obeyed those commandments since I was young. In essence, he's saying, I've gained all of my wealth in the right kind of way. I've been a good person. And then Jesus does not push back on his claims of righteousness. He doesn't. So let's pause for a bit. Are we like this guy? San Francisco is full of world-class achievers. And you might not think of yourself as rich because there's a whole spectrum of people even within our church with a crowd this size. But we're full of people who did get the right grades, did put the work in, made it to the tech company. We, we are a city of world-class achievers. And regarding money, you know, um, our, our church is full of, as e- economists and sociologists, we've got a lot of dinks, we've got a lot of Henrys, we've got a lot of NIMBYs and YIMBYs. You know what these words mean when they're like, sociologists are thinking about the kind of people who live in cities like this. Um, you might not be rich now, but if you're a dink, dual income, no kids, and you don't have kids sucking up all your money, you're like, there's at least a trajectory there. Like, dual income, no kids. You want to live in a good neighborhood in San Francisco? Live in a dink neighborhood. They, they have money to like water things, there's not toys all over, the, all over everything, right? Dinks. You might not be rich now, but there's a trajectory. Um, our church is full of Henrys. High earner, not rich yet. You're making money, but you still have student loans. Can I get an amen? Right? You're like, I got a job. And if you don't screw this up, you're on a trajectory towards, towards some kind of wealth. Our church has people who own in the city, which is itself a feat, and many of you know that. And you might be a NIMBY, the not-in-my-backyard people who own in the city, and they say, don't change this neighborhood. I like Coal Valley the way I want it. And then you've got the YIMBYs who are like, yes, in my backyard. Build a skyscraper next to my house in the sunset. You know, like, do it. Well, I want more people in the city. I'm the YIMBYs. Whether it's the not-in-my-backyard or the yes-in-my-backyard, you have a backyard, so it must be nice, you know? <laughs> 
Like you own in the city and there's wealth. And even if you're saying I'm barely scraping by, if I were to pluck you from this life right now and stick you in the 1200s in rural Tibet, and then I were to ask you, when you were in San Francisco, were you rich? You would say, yes, filthy rich. And so we're not comparing other people in the city. We're meant to like widen our look at people who relate to God and say, we find ourselves in a very a cultural moment. We find ourselves in a particular city in a time and place. And we're asking the question, am I prone to being disconnected to God? Is my goodness, my self-sufficiency, wealth, and other things, are they getting in the way of me approaching Jesus with genuine, heartfelt repentance and belief? I guess what I'm saying is there's no neutral parties here and we might be caught all being like the rich man, but because we're looking just within, around the room or within our city, we, we might think, oh, I'm not rich. The funny thing about being rich too is that everyone thinks that one level rich, more rich than them is rich. They say, oh, I'm not rich. One person up from me is rich, you know? And so none of us think we're rich and like people have studied these sorts of things where everyone thinks their boss is rich, but they're not rich. So we might be like this guy. We're also, um, we live in a time where virtue is very important. Like the Super Bowl was last weekend and the Super Bowl ads are always basically like a five years late indication of where the culture is headed. And the Super Bowl ads used to be like a beautiful woman riding on a mechanical bull eating a hamburger because sex sells back then. But now it's all about virtue, right? Like Subaru is like, I think Subaru knows that we all just went through some stuff during the pandemic and like we all have kind of been in therapy, you know? And so now it's just like Subaru, just, we love you, you know? It's not, yeah, it's not... It's not a woman riding a mechanical bull, you know, because it's like Carl's Jr., like, we're proud of you, you know? <laughs> Everyone be good. Everyone was on their best behavior at the Super Bowl, you know? Virtue is important. Virtue is very important in our culture. And we could talk more and more about that, but it's not, it's the, regardless of your opinions about God, like being a virtuous person on the right side of history is very important. And this man was willing to admit that he had a hole in his heart and that he was missing something. Like the, the, this rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and in the ancient Near East, it is an undignified thing to run. Rich people in the ancient Near East don't run because you'd have to like pick up your robe and you know, like it's an undignified thing. Rich people glide, you know what I mean? They like, it's, it's like a pot of beret. It's like a chasse kind of thing, you know? Like that's how rich people are in, in the ancient Near East. But this guy runs to Jesus, falls on his knees. There's also, a, there's obviously a level of um, desperation in his treatment on this topic. He knows he has a hole in his heart. He's essentially saying, I've gotten to the end of my rope with all of my religious good deeds and observances, but I'm still missing something. And we might be like that as well. Like, Wherever you stand with God, you might say, I had this project that I was on about job success or building comfort and security or gaining the approval of a certain person or a romantic partner or filling my lives with as much pleasure as I could. Or even religiously, I, I was as good as I could and God didn't give me the prayers that I asked for. And you might very well be getting to a place where you say, I'm... I've still got a big hole in my heart. And cultural commentators have noticed that there are more and more people writing and speaking about this topic in our 
Secular Age. I say Secular Age because that's a book by Charles Taylor, a very prophetic book where he's a Catholic philosopher, where he just sort of like laid out like where the world will be heading if we continue on with the beliefs that many people have today. And more people are willing to say these days that we've still got a hole in our heart. This is, I'm going to read you a quote from The Atlantic last week or two weeks ago where one cultural commentator was citing Charles Taylor and the critical age and some sociological data that's been coming out. I'll read the text for you in regards to the fact that many people live with a hole in their heart. It says, the church has in its favor what Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor called the unquiet frontiers of modernity. He makes the case that Western culture is deeply conflicted about faith and God. Modern secularism holds that people are only physical entities without souls that sensations of love and beauty are just neurological chemical events, that there is no meaning other than what we construct, and that there is no right or wrong outside of what we in our minds choose. Yet most people feel that life is greater than what, we can, what can be accounted for by naturalistic explanations. He's saying many people, regardless of their belief in God, are very divided between what they believe and how they actually feel. The next part of the quote says, the modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it's also exhausting. You and you alone must create and sustain your identity. This has contributed to unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and never satisfied longings for affirmation. The modern self is so fragmented, it's individualism leading to the erosion of family, community, and unity of shared values in the nation. The breakdown of neighborhoods and communities means that, and hear this last part, more and more, our lives are run by faceless, massive bureaucracies and inhumane technologies aimed solely at economic efficiency. Real talk. We, we don't think deeply anymore. So many of our beliefs, and whether we're, we're even interested in asking questions about God and how we might draw near to him, so much of our emotional state is more shaped by, I feel like I'm being a hater because some of y'all work in tech, but like it's more shaped by algorithms and ads than like a meditative, deep, crunchy, real, God, do I know you sort of life. We're more pushed around by faceless bureaucracies and inhumane technologies aimed solely at economic efficiency. We are living in the smack dab middle of the unquiet frontiers of modernity and more people than ever are noticing that they're missing something because of it. San Francisco is full of people who are capable, historically wealthy, morally conscious, and the promises of modern secularism are leaving them with a hole in their heart. So what is keeping us from wanting to enter into Jesus's kingdom? The money, or the things that money buys us, because it might be more complicated than just money. So let's talk secondly about money. Money has the unique power to distort and distract us from God's purposes for our lives. Jesus talked about money more than almost any other topic in the New Testament. And this event in Mark 10 is primarily about eternal life, but it, you can see this, the, the scene shifting because this guy walks away and it's evident that Jesus is using it as a teachable moment. He says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. The guy walks away and he just like turns to the disciples and says, it's, it's lecture time. And he says, 
this lesson about money. It's actually some of the hardest sayings that Jesus ever said in the New Testament. Verse 23, he turns to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying here? If you want to soften the language, you might think, okay, just don't be greedy. Or try, and be, try to be in the most minimal percentage of greedy people. Or get your own, but just don't have too much more than other people. But the imagery that Jesus uses is way too vivid. It's way too severe to think that he's just giving you moral help. He's saying something much more severe. The metaphor is too vivid. So what function does money have in our distraction from spiritual things? One, money funds our self-salvation project. If we have money, we have seed money for a project, and when you add to money our sinful heart's desire to look to something to be our Savior and Lord, whatever you believe about God, then money funds that process. And the Bible sort of describes that every person is like this, no matter what you think about God, that we all look to something for affirmation, for justification, for our existence, for meaning in life. We all have to look to something. The Bible calls that action worship. And so we all have these heart idols that we're looking to. Can I find my identity and my self-worth and my life in you? Can I find hope for my future in this other thing? And it, it's not that we love the money. It's that the money always goes out to the thing we love and worship and look to the most. That's the power of money. And it funds that project so that if you have more money and you have more resources, and sometimes that effort, the effort, for instance, of looking to something as your Savior and Lord actually makes you money, and then you have even more money to fund the project. But it's not that we love money. You open up the bank account. You see that you have lots of money in there. And if you think in that moment, the recession is coming, but I'm going to be secure and safe, then it's not that you love money. It's that you love comfort and security. And that is your savior, your functional savior. Even if you believe in Jesus, the functional thing you look to you and say, I will be saved from the hell of insecurity because of this bank account. It's not that you love money, but it's that you love status. You use the money and you plan and you research, I'm gonna buy this thing. It's gonna make me look cool in front of these people. And so it's status or acceptance. It's not that you love money. It's that you love the feeling by saying, I am glorious Look at me in this thing, wearing this thing, driving this thing, whatever it is. It's not that you love money. You might love status. It's not that you love money. It's that you might love family approval as your functional savior and your self-salvation project. The moment that your dad sits with you because you made money and you succeeded and he says, we came to this country with nothing. We worked like crazy. We put all those expectations on you and you did it. It's not that you love money. It's that you love family approval, maybe. And notice, all of these things can be wonderful, beautiful things that contribute to human flourishing. It's just that they make lousy gods. They can't stand up under the weight of those expectations. Money's good, but then it leaves. Family expectations are, are, are great to meet, to honor your father and mother, and yet those expectations, you'll ruin your parents or you'll ruin yourself by having that be your savior. So that's how money works. 
it always goes out to the thing you love the most. And if you were to look at your bank account, this is a scary thing, but look at your bank account, look at your credit card transactions, and you'll see some angle on your Savior and Lord. So it funds our self-salvation project. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.10 says that money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It continues on that some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I wonder if the writer of this text was thinking about the rich young ruler, that they wandered away from God pierced with many griefs. What a fascinating way to say it. Pierced, like the, the, the feeling of grief, the weight of addiction and our inability to let go of the things that we, that we look to other than God, we're pierced with those. Those things poke us, prod us, they hurt us, and we're, we're stricken with grief. Grief is an important word in 1 Timothy 6 because it's the same word that the man feels when he walks away from Jesus. It says in the, in the New International Version that the man uh, walked away from Jesus sad, but the literal translation of the word is grieved. So the love of money is at the root. My question for you is, what's the fruit? If money is the root of all kinds of evil, then what is the fruit that it produces in your life? And it might be this confident longing that the next promotion will give me what I'm looking for. So enough about you, abusing you who like your job, who like money, who like uh, family expectations, because for religious people, for people who like believe in God and want to honor God with their lives, this text is a confrontation on our desire for righteousness because the second thing that money does is that it privileges us to a kind of spiritual righteousness. Um, And this struck me when I moved I used to live in Bakersfield, California. I don't know if y'all have been in Bakersfield, California. We say y'all in Bakersfield, California. And uh, I, I lived and worked with the urban poor. My rent in my apartment was 400 and something dollars a month. I lived and worked with the urban poor in a nonprofit setting. And then I dated and then married my wife who also worked with the urban poor in sort of mental health, county mental health stuff. And so in a blue collar working class city with a lot of poverty. And I was in a church there and a lot of people loved the Lord, like really loved and honored the Lord with their life, but they were in poverty and struggling with many things, alcohol, substance abuse, relational conflict, family dynamics, broken, a lot of, a lot of broken people at this particular church that we were at. So I noticed people loved the Lord, but they weren't functionally like super righteous people. In fact, they would slip into all sorts of ungodly behaviors, even though they repented, believed in Jesus. And it was sort of fascinating because more people came to Jesus in like that lower income, lower class, blue collar church than I've probably experienced even since then. Every week, somebody would give their life to Jesus. The crazy part was like, I I found myself praying like, God, can we like slow down on the people becoming Christians? Because these people are projects. Like they need a lot of work to clean up their lives. My wife and I got married in Bakersfield, California. And the next month we moved to Santa Barbara County. You guys have ever been to Santa Barbara? Like the land of people who made some money somewhere and then moved. We used to say that nobody ever moved to Santa Barbara to change because it's like, I made it in life. And then, so the Christians that we knew there were like, they loved the Lord too. I thought that there'd be a bunch of really superficial people. They, they, the, our church that we were at, they loved the Lord. They gave high-functioning, savvy, thoughtful people, meeting for Bible studies. They knew their Bible. And about a year into living in the contrast of urban poor in Bakersfield and then living with the like, 
the rich, rich in Santa, Bar Santa Barbara County. So rich, that it's, they're not just rich, they have like what I used to call mailbox money, which is like your job for the day is just to put your clothes on and go to the mailbox and collect the money that comes in the mail, like passive income. When you got mailbox money, you have arrived in life. <laughs> so like those people love the Lord giving like crazy. And I, I noticed that there's a lot of, there's an intersection between wealth, privilege and wealth, and even godliness. That money can fool us into thinking that we are more righteous than our hearts really are. For instance, people who were wealthy and Christians, they, they didn't have to work full time, and so they could have a Bible study at their house every, on their ranch every single week. And they didn't have to live with the, the stresses of poverty, because if they had a tough month, they would vacation in the south of France. And, and it, it creates a very righteous performing person, but there's an intersection between that kind of privilege and righteousness. Have you ever met someone who sort of succeeded in life? Maybe they're pretty set and they have a lot of money. And because of that success, they sort of think that they know everything about every topic in the world. Have you had that? Like, bro, you made money on Bitcoin and then you're trying to comment on like health. You know what I mean? Like healthy living or the people, there's an arrogance that puffs us up when we have that kind of security. We think because we made it here, we're in the top 1% of every sort of philosophy in life. And so you start seeing people who have succeeded commenting on every type of area of life. Money puffs us up with a kind of righteousness, even as followers of God. So this is the main problem with the rich young ruler. That in the ancient Near East, even though the Old Testament said all sorts of things about God's inclination to the poor, that God, all, he has a, a, an angle on the poor where he loves them and prefers the marginalized and God's love always goes out to those kinds of people. There was still a perception in the ancient Near East that if you were rich, it was because God favored you, because you were a good person. And yet the disciples held that attitude and said, if this guy can't be saved, then who can? This is the problem with this man's righteousness. It's not that the guy was rich and, and made bad decisions. His problem was his goodness. He goes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And I can imagine Jesus saying, okay, if I'm your good teacher and that's all I am to you, high performing, successful, better than most kind of person, if all I am is your teacher, then who is your savior and Lord? The answer of course is it's you. If all I'm saying is, uh, hey, Jesus, is there a subscription service where I can get some, some consulting and some help and I'll latch on some spiritual power to my existing life, then all that person is doing is uh, asking Jesus to like join them in their own self-salvation project. And Jesus refuses. He's saying, if you want to be with me in my kingdom and have an eternal relationship with me, I have to be more than just your consultant more than your good teacher. And if he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can imagine Jesus saying, if all you're concerned about is your good doing, your religious performance, then who gets the glory? You? That's Jesus' problem with the man. And that's what's, that, that will ruin you and ruin the world. If that's your attitude about life and about God, it will ruin you. Because either you'll be performing for God and you'll be on this roller coaster where you're above everyone because you're making the right choices and you'll look down at other people and say, you guys need to perform like me. 
or you'll be shame-ridden, hiding and not performing and looking at the standard of excellence and saying, I'm just not meeting it. I guess I have to pretend now. Either way, you will vacillate from self-righteousness to spiritual depression. Nothing will give you the grace and mercy to free you from that kind of lifestyle. That's what, that's what will happen to your personal life with God if that's your approach to him. And that's what's wrong with the world. Everyone wants to divide the world between good and bad, between the, the, the people on the right side of history and not on the right side of history. The blue states hate the red states. Everyone's trying to draw their own line and saying, here's the good people and here's the bad people. And Jesus is disrupting your conception of good, especially for this man. And he's saying, it's not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's that those who need me are in with my kingdom. Those who are humble enough to ask for grace and mercy will have it. I'd like to sort of close with this. How do we enter in? Who can be saved? How do we draw close to God and enter into his kingdom? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. And God made it possible through his own grief. We talked about grief piercing us because of the love of money. This man walks away grieved. The same word is expressed multiple times in Jesus's prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is about to be arrested and taken to the cross and he's grieved with sorrow, it says, to the point of death, bleeding from his brow, racked with um, anxiety, knowing what punishment will come on him as he takes on sin on the cross. And it says in Matthew 26, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What is he expressing here? He's expressing that he is about to sell everything to have us. And that's where Jesus gets off asking this person, would you be willing to entertain the idea that you sell everything that you have, disappoint all your friends, all your coworkers, all the people who depend on you for your wealth? Are you willing to sell all of it and have me? Would that be enough for you? And the man walks away grieved, but in the same way, Jesus is sitting with that grief, knowing where he's headed in this interaction with the man, and he's saying, I'm not asking you to do something that I am not willing to do myself, to sell everything, but not just money. You know, Jesus said, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus came and lived a life of poverty and sold all of the riches that he had in eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he sold it all on the cross for us. He's telling the man, would you be willing to lose everything? And then he's sitting in the garden, grieved knowing I'm about to have to sell everything. Think of, you know, we use money to buy status. Think of the fact that Jesus sold everything, lost all of his status. Think of the depths he went down to in dying for our sins on the cross, the status that he lost. Think of the family that he lost in dying on the cross. He says, my God, my God, God the Father, why have you forsaken me? He loses his father. He lost his riches. He gave away, in a sense, his existential fulfillment that many of us look to with money. And he gave it up all for us. Jesus was rich. He's God. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. He's rich. Jesus was young. 
He's in his 30s, like 31 at this point. And Jesus is a ruler. And so he's looking at this man that says in verse 21 that he looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him in love knowing that Jesus is the true and better rich young ruler who instead of walking away from us in grief, gave up everything and his life for us who are spiritually poor. Here's my one parting application for you. Everything that, if let's say you identify what you look to as your functional savior with where your money goes and the thing that that you really love the most, do some thinking and some praying around how if you give your life to Jesus, you might get that very thing back in a powerful, eternal way within God's kingdom. That because he gave up his status for you, and now we have eternal life with Jesus in his kingdom, that's the kind of status that you can never get by the stuff that you buy. That he gave up his relationship with the Father on the cross for you so that you can have an appropriate relationship with your family who might have unrealistic expectations on your performance. That you would have an, an internal joy at being God's son and daughter and not need to fulfill those expectations because of the, the approval that you have from him because of what he gave up for you. See that what he did on the cross actually gives back the thing that you sell to follow Jesus. And lastly, let's celebrate the fact that God's heart always chases after the marginalized. Like think through the history of Christianity. Jesus didn't die on the cross in Rome. He died in the subjugated colony of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. And then the gospel of the gospel message about Jesus, I'm preaching now, I'm pulling on my sleeves. Okay, so the gospel message didn't go primarily to the Romans first. It went out to the the barbarian sort of pagan Gentiles, not the religious elites of the Pharisees. So it went out to the marginalized and the spiritually poor, the Gentiles. And then later, so many people in the Roman Empire were Christian that the powerful people sort of had to co-opt Christianity, but the gospel of Jesus and the work of the Spirit seems to always like run away from the powerful. So it goes into the margins from the Roman Empire where to the barbarians that would eventually make their way into Northern Europe and change and shape the human flourishing of the West. And then Christianity is co-opted by the powerful. And then where are there the most Christians right now? Not in Northern Europe, in the institutions of power, but in the Southern Hemisphere. That the gospel, the Holy Spirit is working powerfully in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. That's because at the center of our faith in Jesus is a savior who gave up power to give the powerless love, grace, and mercy. And so if you're in a spiritually poor place, and let's say you venture to ask the question, Jesus, I want to be close to you. I want to know you. I want to have life in you. And let's say you're in that humble place and you're even willing to give up your goodness and say, I'm, I'm actually done being a high-performing right side of history San Franciscan, San Franciscite, I don't know how to say it. Like you're saying, let's say you're willing to give up even your goodness before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then know that the Holy Spirit will come right into your life when you are poor in spirit and marginalized yourself. That's God's heart. I went over on time. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we celebrate you. We worship you. Our heart jumps at the thought that those of us who are poor in spirit can have you. Thank you for your heart for the poor. I do pray for someone here that is not sure if they've even asked the question, are you who you say you are? And I pray that they would take a season of life and investigate. I pray for the deconstructing, struggling Christian 
as we read a passage about someone who walks away from Jesus and I pray that you would help them to evaluate their functional saviors that might be pulling them away from you. And I pray for the Christian here that we would be overwhelmed with joy at the riches of knowing you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen.